835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. couple quick program notes as we start. We are going to be joined uh, during the 1130 segment of the program by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. We're going to be talking about property taxes and related issues. A lot of stuff going on in Madison in connection with the budget. So Governor Walker is joining us right after the 1130 news. Um, at 10.08 this morning, there's a new study out by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty on on the minimum markup laws, we have been talking about the minimum markup laws for years. There's things that go back to you know the 1930s, which essentially say that various businesses have to charge a certain amount of money for goods, and you're not allowed to sell goods, for example, below cost. As a result, Wisconsin consumers pay a ton more in money, and the argument has always been, well, you know, we need to do this because we need to protect small businesses. I have always thought that is a ridiculous argument. There's a new study out by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Here's the way they headline it. A policy in search of a problem. We will be talking with the author of that study at 10.08 this morning. So tune in for that as well. And one final note. Um, I, this was, I had a lot of fun yesterday afternoon. A- after the, the show ended, I went with uh, our very own Jay Sorgi, and we went, uh, we've been doing, we being the royal we here at WTMJ, have been doing this thing called Brew Food News, where various of the on-air personalities will go to different places they like for lunch, and you have a beer, and you talk about issues and things like that, and and you get to pick where you want to go. And so it was my turn in the barrel the other day, and I said, let's go to Lakefront Brewery. And I think it was just absolutely outstanding. If you go to WTMJ.com, you scroll down the middle of our main page, you'll see something called Web Exclusives. And it's Jay and I talking Donald Trump sitting at uh, sitting at Lakefront Brewery. And, you know, we, we focused on they brought out cheese curds and their, their fish fry and we had a beer in the background. I'm sitting next to the, the giant stein that Bernie Brewer used to slide into at County Stadium. You know, they, they have they have that there. And then we do a podcast as well. And I had an opportunity yesterday to talk to Russ Klish, who's the guy that founded Lakefront Brewery and has made it such a success. So if you want to see the video and also download the podcast, WTMJ.com, video, brew food, news, um, check it out. And thanks to the folks at Lakefront Brewery for all their hospitality yesterday. All right, we start off the program today like we start off every program Three big things. Big thing number one. And actually, the the tone of this is going to change just a little bit based on developments. Yesterday evening, late afternoon, it was announced that um, Robert Mueller, um, an attorney, former prosecutor, and former head of the FBI, had been appointed to be a special counsel in connection with an investigation into Russian influence in the last election. Now, of course, we we all know the background of of this. For the last week or so, there has been a firestorm about Donald Trump firing former FBI director James Comey, and the allegations were, was this obstruction of justice? Was Trump trying to do this to, you know, end a probe into the Russian investigation? Now, I don't believe that for one minute. As I've argued before, I think what happened is Trump is very, very impulsive and got progressively angrier and angrier and angrier and wasn't getting loyalty from Comey, so he, he just ended up getting rid of him. But again, it created this huge firestorm. And Democrats, who had hated James Comey up until a week or two ago, now he was the giant savior, proving that you know there's nothing that Donald Trump can do in the eyes of some that would be right. But anyhow, when I saw that it was announced yesterday that Robert Mueller had been appointed as special counsel, and, and there, 
you might wonder, sometimes you hear the term special prosecutor, sometimes you hear the term special counsel, and you wonder, are they different? Are they same? Essentially, they are the same as far as job responsibilities, but a special prosecutor is appointed by the president. A president can appoint a special prosecutor at any time. A special counsel is appointed by the attorney general. And the attorney general, to appoint a special counsel, the the standard is, um, in some cases, the attorney, the Department of Justice will have to recuse itself from an investigation. Maybe there's a conflict of interest, or they feel that by them participating, it creates maybe an appearance of impropriety or something like that. And so what they it did is Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, announced yesterday that because of all the political issues and stuff swirling around, he was going to appoint a special counsel. The powers of a special counsel are essentially the same as the powers of a special prosecutor. It, it's the special prosecutor can conduct an investigation and can bring charges if they see fit. So the, the terms, it, how the, the powers are pretty much synonymous and identical. It's just a, a difference of, of who you're appointed by. In this case, Mueller was appointed by the attorney general under the law that gives him the authority to approve special counsel. But it's pretty much, special counsel is pretty much similar to special prosecutor. Well, anyhow, when, when I saw this news yesterday, I thought, this this is great because as I have argued for the last well forever, I I want us to get on with the business of the country, and if it's true, if there's evidence that suggests that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians, well, okay, follow that evidence and then see where it leads. But at the same time, I believe a lot of this stuff is a distraction to what we really need to get done: tax reform, health care reform, all those things. So I thought this is great. You got Robert Robert Mueller, who is well-respected by Democrats and Republicans. He has a reputation of being an independent voice. This is fine. He'll do this investigation, and then you let the chips fall where they may. So I thought, hey, this is great. The story's going to be everybody's happy with Mueller. Let us move on. The president will be applauded. The attorney general will be applauded. Well, all right. A scant few hours after the appointment of Robert Mueller— President Trump takes to Twitter um, this morning, about 5.30 this morning, um, to comment on the appointment of the special counsel. Now, yesterday, when the president, when this was announced, the president issued sort of a staid statement, S-T-A-I-D, you know, kind of a staid statement saying, all right, I, I, there's, there, we've not been engaged in any sort of wrongdoing. Special counsel has been appointed. And, and I thought that's the appropriate tone. Twitter this morning. Donald Trump, with all the illegal acts that took place in the Clinton campaign and Obama administration, there was never a special counsel appointed. Another tweet comes out about 13 minutes after that one. This is the single greatest witch hunt of a politician in American history. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Yesterday, the president says... Special counsel has been appointed. Fine. There's no evidence. There's not going to be any evidence. We didn't do anything wrong. Today he is tweeting out that he believes that this is the single greatest witch hunt in American history of a politician in American history. He is railing that there was never a special counsel appointed to investigate the Clinton campaign or the Obama administration. 
414-799-1620. Your reaction to this, and I'll, I'll start this off, and I understand I got a couple emails from people yesterday saying, I think you're being too critical. I get a lot of emails from people saying, you're not harsh enough on Trump. Got a couple yesterday saying, I'm never listening to WTMJ again. I'm going up the dial because they never criticized Donald Trump. How dare you criticize Donald Trump? Well, your reaction to these these tweets is this the greatest witch hunt of a politician in American history? The appointment of Robert Mueller, I think, was outstanding. I think it is unfortunate that the president has decided to react in this fashion. And I think he's undermining himself once again. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is big story number one. We discuss with you in two minutes. It's 844. 847, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Karen in Wheaton, Illinois. Karen, good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Karen. You know, I've just about had it with this man. I, I'm at the end of my rope. Um, can't somebody take the Twitter account away from him? <laughs> I, I actually, I have, a, I have a tweet here from Lisa in Windlake who makes the same point. You cannot tell me there is no IT guy somewhere in D.C. that couldn't disable that Twitter account. Well, it's so foolish. He's acting like a petulant child, and I, I don't want to steal your third story. But that speech he gave yesterday, he made it all about him. And I just want to shake him and say, shut up. Stop being a victim and lead. Right. Well, you know, I mean, the, the thing, Karen, is, I, again, I, that's how I led into it. I thought I thought the appointment of Robert Mueller was, was going to put to rest all, all this stuff. I'm not at all convinced. And I, frankly, I don't believe that there's going to be evidence, you know, indicating obstruction of justice or anything like that. But obviously this has become such an issue that you need to have some sort of investigation of it. This is an objective guy. I thought Donald Trump could, if, if if he would have just stuck with his statement yesterday, I think he would have been praised. He could have ended this. There's nothing going on here. This will prove it. I like Robert Mueller, period. Then you move on. But now, again, the story is he's railing and claiming to be a victim and claiming to be a victim of a witch hunt. I mean, it's like, my goodness gracious, you're seizing, you're seizing defeat from the jaws of victory again and again and again. He just... He can't seem to help himself. There's no filter. No, no. Okay, thanks. I got pre- 414-799-1620. And again, this isn't, I, I, I don't believe that there is going to be any sort of evidence of collusion. I frankly, I am curious to know, you know, what Russian involvement was in our election process. Um, and I, I think to the extent that you can figure that out and figure out how to stop it from happening in the future, that is an important thing. I don't believe that there's going to end up being evidence of obstruction of justice. I, I just don't think so. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. But at the same time, for goodness sakes, you know, Mr. President, by, by sending out these tweets, you I acknowledge that you appeal to your base. But what you do is you turn off so many other people who want to want to support you. Uh, Dave in Sussex. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. What do you think? I sort of agree with Trump on this one. Okay, tell me why. I think you've got both sides of the aisle trying to nail him for something. I really do. Well, you certainly have Democrats trying. You certainly have Democrats trying to nail him. I think the Republicans would be happy to nail him and get him impeached, thrown out of office, whatever you want to call it, because none of our Republican base like him. The 
It's like all the politicians are against him. The public wanted him in there, but the politicians don't. I guess, I, let me go back, I mean, and Dave, obviously no argument with the Democrats, who there, there's nothing that he can do that, that's right. You know, two weeks ago, the Democrats hate James Comey, now he's the savior. So I, I get that. I mean, I guess from the perspective of the Republicans, I I, I thought over the first 100 days, a lot of the Republicans, um, even though they might have found some of the, the personal traits of President Trump a little bit off-putting, I think a lot of them were lining up to try to, to support his agenda. You don't think so, huh? No. They only lined up for the stuff that they would have supported no matter who was president. They didn't go. They didn't support him on any of the stuff that he would have wanted, like to scale back on the free trade agreement, right. like and, to build a wall. Yeah, the wall. Anything that just Trump wanted, they backed off on. Only the stuff that they, yeah. you know, personally agreed with. Well, I mean, I think that. I mean, I, I, I understand, and, and the wall remains. That that's a that, that's a fair point. The wall remains incredibly controversial, and I think the reality is the wall is never going to to get built. But I'm not sure anybody really thought that the wall was going to be built. Now, I mean, obviously, there's been sort of a, an uneasy relationship between the president and between the establishment Republican Party. But, but keep in mind, a lot of the stuff that the president's pushing is not consistent with traditional Republican principles a- at all. But I don't think anybody's been wishing f- – I guess I don't think anybody's been wishing for him to fail. And I guess I just don't think – Based on all the stuff that's out there, while I do not believe, and I keep saying this, that there's going to be evidence showing obstruction of justice, uh, given all the stuff that's there, I'm not sure that I see this as a witch hunt. Clearly, Russia tried to play a role in influencing our elections. And the sooner you put this thing to bed, the better, because then it lets you get on with the important stuff, which is governing this country. And that's why I I was... I was pleased initially when it seemed like the president was embracing the appointment of Robert Mueller. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, um, Richard in Watertown. Richard, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. How are you? Very well, thank you. What do you think about all this? Well, I, I have never been a Trump fan at all, but um, I, I, I think he's his own worst enemy. I, 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 like, I agree with a lot of uh, previous callers in, in that He's creating all these problems for himself by doing these tweets. Yeah, and and uh, instead, and probably if he would just let it alone. Yes, <laughs> these investigations go on and and settle whatever way it's going to be, but they wouldn't be the focal point anymore. Yes, yes, and that, he could govern. Yes, that, that see that Richard, that is my point exactly because the story. If he hadn't sent he's, – he's now made this yet another day story. If he hadn't sent out these tweets this morning, the story would be respected former FBI director appointed to head the investigation, boom, and then the story goes away at least for, for a while until the investigation ends up being completed or there's some big revelation. But now by, by trying to play the victim card and calling this a witch hunt, now for the next two days you're going to have all the long knives out and everybody is going to be saying, okay, he thinks this is, is a witch hunt and there's going to be all the stories of all the other presidents who were investigated, whether it was Watergate or Iran-Contra or the whole Ken Starr thing going after Bill Clinton. And that, and then they're going to be saying, oh, this isn't a witch hunt at all. You've just made it an extra couple days story. Meanwhile, we're not getting anything done in Washington. Exactly. And, and he does this on everything. Right, right. He, That's he, it. He, he, he doesn't leave it alone, and, and he creates more controversy by – tweeting yes. and, and, and making those uh, focal yeah. points. Yeah, yeah, right, you've continued. And, uh, 
just let it let it let the investigation play out and see where it goes and get on with the business of the country. But big picture, tweet aside, I think the appointment of of Robert Mueller as a special counsel was a very, very good step. He's a very, very well-respected guy. I think he is a straight shooter. And here's the bottom line. Whether you're a Trump opponent or a Trump supporter or somebody like me who just wants the country to get on on track and do the important things, I, I think this is a good thing. He's a straight shooter. I think he will follow the evidence where the evidence leads. I've seen nothing to indicate that I think it's going to lead to collusion, uh, obstruction of justice or anything like that. But I, I want to get this thing behind us. And big picture is I think it's a good step. 855 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Big thing number two, David Clark going, going, gone. Stick around. It's 855. This is Jeff Wagner. A couple quick program notes. Um, About 11.35, we're scheduled to be joined by Scott Walker, the governor of the state of Wisconsin. We're going to be talking about taxes, something near and dear to everybody's heart and what's going on in Madison with regard to the budget. At 10.08, we're going to be talking to the author of a new study that's come out examining Wisconsin's minimum markup law, the law that essentially says that businesses have to charge certain amounts for goods and services. As a result, we pay a lot more as consumers for, for different items. And it's it's amazing. You, you'll see this, especially if you live like on the Illinois, close to the Illinois border, um, around Thanksgiving, around Memorial Day, there'll be ads that will be run for the same food product. And it's run in Wisconsin and it's run in northern Illinois. And you pay a lot less in northern Illinois thanks to Wisconsin's minimum markup law. So we'll be talking to the author of a study that analyzes this. The justification has always been, well, well, if we don't have the minimum markup law, small business people are going to be run out of business. That is a lot of hokum, and we'll be talking to the author again of that study. Uh, Gene Miller is doing his WTMJ Cares event, and um, I'm going to share my program with him tomorrow. We're going to be doing this Radiothon. Gene Miller is going to be talking to me sometime this hour as well about that. Right now, though, big story number two, David Clark going, going, gone. And the, the way Sheriff Clark is departing is not unlike the way Sheriff Clark has kind of run the office for the last few years. Um, David Clark goes on a local radio station up the dial yesterday afternoon to announce or to confirm what was being you know, reported that he was taking a position with the Department of Homeland Security. This position is as an assistant secretary um, where he's going to work in the department's office of partnership and engagement. So he'll be a liaison with state, local and tribal law enforcement officials and governments. Um, It is a position that does not require Senate approval. So he doesn't have to be confirmed for the Senate. All he has to do is be hired. Now, I say he's leaving kind of with the same sort of storm that he's kind of operated in for the last couple of years because um, he, he, he has announced this himself. That's not how the protocol is for announcements to be made. Um, typically on appointments at this level, the announcements are, are made by the White House um, or they're made by the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security comes out and says, you know, these are our appointments. These who have been we have been hired. Um, they have made no such announcement <laughs> with regard to Sheriff Clark. 
And so after Sheriff Clark says, I'm taking this job, you know, of course, then all the media goes and they, they ask, okay, hey, is, is this true? Can you confirm it? And the White House issues a statement that is featured in the New York Times saying senior positions such as this are announced by the department when made official by the secretary. That would be the secretary of the Department of Homeland Affairs. Affairs. No such announcement with regard to the Office of Public Engagement has been made. So it appears Sheriff Clark, I don't want to say jumped the gun because I'm, I'm sure he's been offered this position and he's been vetted and all those type of things. But it, it is, it's one of those things, it's sort of like if you are applying for a job and they, they call you up and they say, hey, Jeff, you, you've got the job and, and we're going to be announcing on Friday, we're going to be, be putting out a press release that you've got this position. We're going to be announcing on a Friday. We're going to have a press conference, all those type of things. And it's Tuesday. And they say, just, yep, just, just wait. Friday, we'll, we'll do this all. And then it would be as if I were to go on Facebook Tuesday afternoon and say, hey, I've just taken a job with whatever. So um, it's, just, it's a small detail, but you've you got to wonder how the folks at Homeland Security kind of feel about this. In any event, big picture, Sheriff Clark has been arguably one of the most polarizing figures in local politics and in southeastern Wisconsin over essentially the last 15 years. I remember sitting down with him when he was first appointed by Governor McCallum, acting Governor McCallum, and I, right, we, had, we had breakfast together right down the street here, and I, I remember thinking at the time what a breath of fresh air I thought he was going to be. He was a guy who, law enforcement background, was willing to challenge the establishment and the political orthodoxy, was not hung up on political correctness, and I think for a large part of his tenure said the things that needed to be said, and for that he gets a lot of credit. I also think that over the last few years, he had grown bored and frustrated with the job, and believe me, I can understand how dealing with Chris Abley is, particularly with Chris Abley as county executive as opposed to Scott Walker, and dealing with the Clown Car Act that continues to be the Milwaukee County Board, I can understand how it would be extremely, extremely frustrating when you're in constant battle. So I, I think he got extremely frustrated over the, particularly the last you know, six or so years since Scott Walker, you know, became governor and, you know, left Milwaukee County and Chris Abley took over. So I think there's been a lot of frustration in that regard. And candidly, I think the sheriff grew bored with the job. And there's no surprise. I mean, I think he always had sights on on bigger sorts of things. I think he grew bored with the job. And I think that you've seen that in the last year or two, where I believe he's kind of been punched out on the, these Milwaukee County events. But at the same time, um, he certainly accomplished a lot of things over the years. So 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It certainly appears as if Sheriff Clark is is gone. Um, once he submits his letter of resignation to the governor, the governor will appoint the next sheriff. That sheriff will then stand for election in November of 2018. Before Sheriff Clark leaves town, gets on the horse, puts on the cowboy hat, and rides out of town, what grade would you give him? 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage talk and text line. What grade would you give his tenure? He has certainly been 
Well, he has been, you could argue, a polarizing force in Milwaukee County. You can also argue that he has been, in many respects, an extremely positive force. And I think it's important when you're trying to judge somebody, you you do have to evaluate the full body of that person's work. If you just focus on the last six months, that's not fair. If you just focus on the first year, that's not fair. But evaluating the entire body of David Clark's work— What grade would you give him? Has he been a positive force in Milwaukee, a negative force? I will give you my grade, and we will discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 914. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Seventeen, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. David Clark announcing yesterday that he is leaving as the Milwaukee County Sheriff to take a job um, at Homeland Security. It does not require Senate confirmation. Uh, interesting legacy that he leaves behind. What grade would you give him? Let's talk to Al in Spring Prairie. Al, you're first. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Uh, thanks for sure. taking the call. Absolutely. Uh, I would give him a solid B+, and because... The, uh, to put up with all the crud, the junk that goes on in that Milwaukee County yep. and other places around our southeast Wisconsin, uh, <laughs> he stands up against it. And he's also been traveling around doing that to spread to what he thinks is the best path for yeah. uh, our area. And, yeah, uh, and, and, I, it, and it's fair to, him, you know, Al, I think it's, it's, it is fair to criticize him, I think, for sort of some of the over-the-top rhetoric. And, I mean, you know, his detractors will point to things like sort of the autocratic way that he ran the department and, you know, um, run-ins with people on airplanes and stuff like that. And I, I, think that that's, I think that that's fair. But at the same time, if you look at, you know, his body of work over the last, you know, 14 or 15 years, um, I think he took on a lot of sacred cows around here and said a lot of things that needed to, to be said. Yes, uh, stands up against, uh, with the race that he is, stands up against the things that can, right. be, can be improved and need to be talked about openly so that uh, yeah. things, you have to have change, and there has to be change, and I think he helps with that. Yeah, he, he, he at least started that conversation, and it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people in Milwaukee County, the very liberal Milwaukee County, were, were so upset with him, is here you had a, a black man who had the temerity to, tie, to try to you know, challenge a, a lot of the, the conventional wisdom and a lot of the political orthodoxy and, and say things that, well, you know, a white politician, if they said it, they'd be labeled as racist, but here you've got David Clark. You know, so then you had a lot of people who were saying, okay, well, he's going to be, he's an Uncle Tom or whatever. No, he, he was a guy who saw, who sees situations and is willing to say all right look you know if we're going to make changes we have to stop apologizing for things people have to start being accountable i give him a solid b now i understand that there's some people would say oh this guy he was a complete failure no he wasn't he accomplished a lot of a lot of really good things i think as i said leading into this for the last couple years um, he's he's been sort of punched out uh, of this, and I think he's was kind of trying to figure out where where do you go from here and what is the next step in his career. But I give him a solid B. I, I do. 
I think that there's issues. You know, you've had people who, who died in the jail. And whether or not that was – is that a failure of policy? Is that a, fair of, a failure of individuals? I mean, that's the type of stuff that, that should not be happening. But at the same time, Clark, just like Donald Trump in many respects, became such a local lightning rod that there was nothing that he could do that was ever going to make at least a certain segment of the population happy. And you had all these Democrats who were very, very upset that – I mean, let's face it, politically – Sheriff Clark is a Republican. He is a conservative. He ran as a Democrat and kept winning Democratic primaries. And that drove at least, you know, some of the Democratic establishment just absolutely over the bend. You know, how how did he do this? So, I mean, I think he deserves credit for that, for, you know, raising those types of issues. You know, keep in mind also that the sheriff's department is not really, I mean, the Milwaukee Police Department and the local police departments are the, the primary law enforcement agencies in in this area. You know, the sheriff's department has some crime-fighting responsibility, but they're also out patrolling the freeways. You know, they're, they're running the jail and those type of things. So in, in general, I think it is time. I wish David Clark very well. I, I do. I think it's probably a little bit past time. You, you, always, you always have to know, you know, when it's time to, to leave the stage. And I think, like I say, he certainly, I think it's time for him to leave. I have confidence that the governor is going to, you know, find an experienced law enforcement professional to put into that job who will do a fine job leading up to the, you know, election in November of 2018. But, I mean, in general, like I say, I, I give him a I give him a solid B, and that that takes into account the entire overview of his work. So he gets a solid B from me, and I certainly wish David Clark well. My guess is we have not heard the last of him. And to me, the one interesting question is going to be where, how, if, if this is true, if he's leaving for this gig at Homeland Security, how long does he stay there? And what is the next step after that? Because um, I think that's a good job. It's a fine job. It's probably not the type of job that you make a career out of, obviously. And so, you know, the question becomes, you know, will David Clark come back to Wisconsin? Will he run for office? Um, will he end up on Fox News? Will he stay in law enforcement? Will he retire quietly on a beach in Belize? Probably unlikely, at least not anytime soon. But um, David Clark, going, going, gone. Coming up next, big story number three. President Trump gives a speech yesterday where he talks about he, how unfairly he has been treated since taking office. We discuss 923 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 926, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. Hey, help us complete the memorial to a local military legend as we continue our WTMJ Cares initiative with a special radiothon beginning at 830 tomorrow morning. It's your chance to contribute to our goal of completing the new memorial for Medal of Honor recipient Lance Sijon at Mitchell International Airport. Help us complete this mission starting at 830 tomorrow. Learn more about Lance Sijon, his story, and the lasting legacy of Lance Sijon by clicking on the WTMJ cares link at wtmj.com matter of fact in less than 10 minutes my friend and colleague gene miller who is spearheading the, spearheading this particular wtmj cares initiative he's going to be in and we are going to be discussing it um, very very worthwhile cause and you can get all the background at wtmj.com uh, 
big story breaking today, and I don't really know what to make of it, is um, Roger Ailes, who really revolutionized cable television as the chairman of of the Fox television stations, um, just he passed away today, dead at the age of 77. Um, Ailes' legacy perhaps somewhat complicated by the fact that he was essentially forced out at Fox last July after a, an incredible, just an, an incredible career um, going back to the, the early 1990s. He was forced out after allegations of, of sexual harassment and allowing a culture of sexual harassment to exist at Fox. And r- regardless of that, it, it doesn't change the fact that during, you know, his tenure at, at Fox, he really changed the entire scope of cable news, and you know, took this from a okay, here we're just going to be a, a complete like news thing that we're going to offer commentary. We are going to be unabashedly conservative, and there, there's no question that that found a market. Roger Ailes understood what I think was missing from a lot of media coverage. And, you know, for better or worse, you know, the way cable news is presented now, whether it's the left spin that you get from MSNBC or Fox News or whatever, it, it's, it all traces back to Roger Ailes. There's no question he had a, a huge impact. I met him, I met him once, not, but this is before Fox News. I mean, I met him, you know, he was a political operative. He um, he worked on the campaign to reelect Ronald Reagan, you know, in, in 87 and 88. And um, that, that's that's where I met him. I, I met him at an event where President Reagan was running for reelection and he, he was around. And so I had a, a chance to talk to him just, just briefly then. I, I didn't never had an opportunity to meet him when he was running Fox News or anything like that. But th- there's no question. It, it's an amazing it is an amazing legacy. I understand that it's going to be tainted to some extent by these allegations of sexual harassment. The other thing that I, I'm, I'm going to be curious, they have not announced a cause of death or why. It is it is always interesting to me that when you have the, these highly successful people who are so driven to achieve and their work is such a part of their life that they end up retiring or stepping down and then they pass away within a relatively short period of time. Now, maybe it's going to turn out that that you know, he that there was some like undisclosed illness that he was battling, but I'm not aware of that and and this is what 10 months after he leaves Fox News and uh, that that he ends up passing away. Hmm. So we'll we'll wait to hear that, but um sail on Roger Ailes, he was certainly a huge force in shaping media and politics and commentary, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. It is 934, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers close out their series with the Padres this afternoon. The first place Milwaukee Brewers. Wow. The first place Milwaukee Brewers. It's a matinee here on WTMJ. No TV, by the way. So if you want to hear the game, you listen to it right here. Jeff Levering and Lane Grindle will begin our pregame coverage at 2.05, sponsored by your Milwaukee Honda dealers. What is so cool to me is that the Brewers are playing good baseball. And that's you know, the last couple years, unfortunately. The reality is they had awful Aprils, and they, they were pretty much out of it by the time May 1st rolled around, not to mention Memorial Day. And now they're look are they going to win the National League Central I'm not predicting that but they're playing good solid baseball they're fun to watch and that makes uh, that makes it interesting somebody else who makes it interesting on a daily basis how's that for a segue wow. our very own 
Gene Miller. You're, Gene, good morning. You're so light on your feet, Jeff Wagner. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate sure. it. Um, we have, over the last year or two, um, done a number of these WTMJ CARES initiatives, and and this is one that I know is near and dear to your heart. You're, you're kind of spearheading it. Let's talk a little bit about it. Our latest effort is to raise funds for the Lance John Memorial that's being constructed. It's almost done, in fact, at uh, Mitchell International. There, of course, was the fighter jet that stood at the 440th for years. When the 440th left, the jet was just there in the middle of a field. It was pretty much deserted, and Lance John's sister Janine and a bunch of her friends and others took it upon themselves to find a new home for that jet and create this beautiful memorial. It's going to go at the uh, main entrance to Mitchell International, right off of Howell, and it's already there. You can see the jet and all the other stuff that's going there, benches, plaques, memorials, where people can learn the Lance Sijon story and reflect on his service, uh, use his story as their inspiration, and also remember those who fought in all wars, including Vietnam, that war that for you and I was very real. We lived through it. We didn't serve. I did not go, but many did of our age. And they still bear the scars of that war today. Those veterans did not get a very pleasant welcome home after that that war ended. And um, so... What we're trying to do is finish off the bills. There's a $30,000 tab, and we'd like to pay that off for Janine and the others. So many have given in kind to constructing this memorial that have donated their services, and uh, those are the heroes behind the hero, as Janine calls them. But we need some more heroes now to step up and help us with this $30,000. We're about halfway there. I just checked on the website at WTMJ.com. But we still got a lift to go. So tomorrow... A radiothon. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that. How's that going to work? Very simple. You're going to generously allow me to come on the air along with Janine and some other folks and uh, simply tell the story and ask for donations. Uh, The number, by the by, if you want to write this down now so you're ready for it, 414-967-5417. That's 414-967-5417. Because we're going to set a phone bank up right down the hall from where you and I are, correct? So. You, we have people, volunteers, answering the phone. You might answer the phone yourself from time to time, huh? I may, I may surprise, shock, and scare a few people. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will be there. And uh, this, of course, not only will help us hopefully reach our goal, but also we've been doing a lot of this so far via the Internet uh, at WTMJ.com. And there are folks that are reluctant to contribute to GoFundMes for whatever. They're not computer savvy, maybe don't even have a computer. So this is that last broad net that we're going to cast for everybody out there because we know we've gotten some calls like, you know, I'd like to help, but I really don't like doing it that way. Are you going to do something like this? So, yeah, tomorrow morning, right after Wisconsin's Morning News, right at the start of your show, we're going to start our Radiothon and uh, hopefully bring this in and then some. Let's talk for a minute. Tell people, the, for who might not be familiar, the Lance Sijon story. From Bayview, just your all-American guy, good at a bunch of things. Athlete, uh, all-city wide receiver, played for uh, what turned out being a, a conference championship uh, or city championship team at Bayview in the late 50s. Um, went to the Air Force Academy and became a fighter pilot and was sent to Vietnam along with uh, others and was stationed in Da Nang. In November of 67, he took off on what would be his final flight, a very what he said was going to be a very simple mission, but it got very complex. A bomb that he was dropping, the fuse detonated early. It damaged the jet. He had to eject. He lived in the jungle for 46 days. He started out at, what was it, 220 pounds, and by the time he was captured 46 days later by the North Vietnamese, he was down to 80 pounds. He was still able to resist, got out, escaped, was recaptured, and then torture began, beatings began. They tried to exact information out of Lance Saijan. He gave them nothing. Name, rank, serial number. And his fellow POW saw what he went through to the point where after he died in January of 1968 in Hanoi, 
they would tell his story to each other. They couldn't talk to each other directly. They were prisoners of war, so they would tap it out using this tap code. Maybe you saw Tom Brokaw do a feature on this a couple of weeks ago with some uh, Vietnam vets from the Hanoi Hilton. They told his story in tap code to make sure that they all knew what had happened to this guy. And when they were released at war's end in 1973, those who were with him at the end made sure that... uh, Superiors found out his sacrifice, and uh, he was put in for the Medal of Honor. He received it posthumously in 1976. So once again, um, people can make contributions now. You go to WTMJ.com and just click on the WTMJ Care page. We'll take you to that funding. But tomorrow morning, big deal for people who just... It might have been gone out and got a pencil. The number that they're going to be able to call? 414-967-5417. And we, I guarantee you we'll remind people of that tomorrow. Thank you so much. So uh, Gene Miller, going to be participating as part of my program tomorrow for a very worthwhile cause. So thank, thank you, you sir. Thank you time, sir. Take Absolutely. Uh, yes, it's our WTMJ Cares initiative. And this is something that I, I've been very proud to be associated with over the last year or so. And we've been involved in a number of different things from building playgrounds to dugouts at baseball fields. Mine, of course, was uh, not a fundraising one. It was to promote cancer awareness. Um, something very near and dear to my heart. We did that last summer, and this is an incredible thing. So hope you'll be listening. Hope you will participate. Hope you let us kind of help us get over the top on this. People have been very, very generous thus far, and we do want to get over the top on the gifts and make sure that there's no bills. And I, I think one of the things that I have noticed here is that we we collectively, all of us, doesn't matter what our politics are, we, we rally around support for our, our veterans. And, you know, I've seen this time and time again, and this is just, it is another opportunity to do that, and our Radiothon is tomorrow. All right, coming up, big thing number three. President Trump gives a speech yesterday where he talks to prospective graduates about their futures, but he also talks about his presence, present, claiming he has been treated incredibly unfairly. We're going to discuss that. Stick around. It's 942. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 945. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, How will the Trump-Comey saga finally play out? Is there yet another shoe to drop? What are the odds that this presidency lasts beyond a single term? Jay Sorgi and I dissect those issues and more. It's the latest installment of our Brew Food News series. We had lunch at Lakefront Brewery yesterday. There's also a podcast that's attached to this where I get a chance to have a nice conversation with uh, Lakefront founder Russ Klish. It's fascinating. You can check out the video. It's up now at WTMJ.com. It's under the Brew Food News segment. The video itself is only a couple minutes. Uh, the podcast is about 10 or 15. Had a great time doing that and thanks to everybody at Lakefront. We were down there yesterday. All right. President Trump gives a a speech to 195 graduates yesterday at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. And it was sort of interesting because, you know, typically, typically when you're giving these commencement speeches, you talk about the graduates. President Trump started talking about himself. This is one of the things he said. Over the course of your life, you will find that things are not always fair. You will find that things happen to you that you do not deserve and that are not always warranted. But you have to put your head down and fight, fight, fight. Never, ever, ever give up. Okay? Then he says, look at the way I've been treated lately, especially by the media. No politician in history. And I say this with great surety. 
No politician in history has ever been treated worse or more unfairly. You can't let them get you down. You can't let the critics and the naysayers get in the way, get in the way of your dreams. All right? No politician in history. Now that would probably be news to to Abraham Lincoln. If you look at the way the media dealt with Lincoln during the Civil War, huh? Um Richard Nixon, even pre-Watergate Richard Nixon, 1960 Richard Nixon might feel differently. Bill Clinton, during the height of the impeachment scandals and the Monica Lewinsky thing, Bill Clinton might might feel differently. But President Trump, again, let, let's put the bombast aside and let's put aside the, I say this with surety that nobody's been ever been treated worse than me, which I, I think is certainly a debatable kind of claim, but he believes that he has been treated incredibly unfairly by the media. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Do you agree? I mean, do you agree that it's been completely unfair or so extremely unfair, no politician ever been treated worse or more unfairly? Or... Is a lot of this has a lot of the obviously negative coverage been brought on by actions the president has engaged in himself? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now there is an irony to to me to what the president is saying is because I think if you talk to any of the the dozen plus. Republican candidates who, you know, back in 2015 were running for the Republican nomination, they would tell you that one of their greatest sources of frustration was the glowing media coverage that Donald Trump got. The fact that he pretty much sucked the air out of that entire campaign because every time you turned on the news, you had this glowing, wonderful coverage of of Trump. And you can argue, I think, pretty compellingly, that Donald Trump might have been, at least during the primaries, as sort of a media creation because everybody was so fascinated. You can also, I think, strongly argue that the media has certainly turned on him. And there is no question that there is a lot of negative coverage that goes along. But the issue is, is is it in fact unfair? 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I, at the risk of, again, I'm at the risk of irritating some people. Yes, I think the media is out to get him. Yes, I think some of the coverage, a lot of the coverage has been ridiculously harsh. At the same time, though, I think the president has brought a lot of that on himself. The president's refusal to allow things to to let go. The president's taking to Twitter in the middle of the night and sending out stuff which in, in many cases is either patently false or just absolutely ridiculous has continued to i think take the trump administration off off message and yes the media is out to get them but the media is also in a situation where they're there to try to get eyeballs or ears to listen or sell newspapers or get clicks on the website and a lot of the stuff that president trump has done I think has allowed stories which would be one-day stories to become two- and three-day stories. So in this regard, yes, is it unfair? But at the same time, I think Donald Trump has to take some of the responsibility for that because he has invited it with um, some of his conduct. So yes, they're out to get him. 
Is this incredibly unfair? Well, maybe, but he brings a lot of it on himself. And I continue to believe that the president, in many respects, is is his own worst enemy. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage uh, Talk and Text Line. Has, has the coverage been incredibly unfair? Let's, uh, let's see. Um, I've got a, our text line is just exploding here. Steve says, President Trump needs to turn the other cheek. Just do your job and let your actions speak for themselves and get the you-know-what off of uh, Twitter. Let's see another text. He's a bully. He's a billionaire bully. Doesn't know how to play nice with friends. He's controlling. Chris says, regarding Trump being in the White, being in the White House is not a martini lunch with um, um, your with friends in New York, which is what I believe he thought it would be. This is the big league, and he needs to grow up a little and learn the craft of working with politicians and world leaders. Okay, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Big story number three. President Trump gives a speech yesterday where he says he's been treated more unfairly than any politician in history. Again, there's lots of politicians going back to Abraham Lincoln and probably before who would strongly dispute that. But but the bigger point is, has the media been unfair? And if so, has the president brought some of that on himself? We discuss. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 952. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 955. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. One could argue he fired the most famous bullet of the 21st century, the one that killed Osama bin Laden. Hear from former Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill as he shares his unique and amazing story. That's with Scafidi and Bill Statt. It is later today at 1.50. Speaking about later today, in just about 15 minutes, we're going to be talking to the author of a new study that looks at Wisconsin's minimum markup law, the law that, for example, requires people who sell gasoline to charge us more than they want to charge us. And uh, it's a very interesting analysis to it kind of takes a look at the question of whether or not this really works or not and whether it achieves the objectives it does. And so we'll be talking to the author of this study at 1008 and then approximately 1135. We're going to be joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin. Um, Tax policy is being debated as part of the budget and in the legislature. Governor Walker is going to join us. We're going to talk about things that everybody should care about, which is tax policy and property taxes and things of the like. Right now, though, President Trump gives a speech at the Coast Guard Academy, and he, he just talks uh, about – well, he plays the victim card. There's, there's no question about it. He says that he is – things aren't always fair um, – Look at the way he's been treated by the media. No politician in history, and I say this with surety, has been treated worse and more unfairly, which, again, historically, I, I'm, I think it's probably very much up up in questioning. And Look at the way Lincoln was treated during the Civil War. But the bigger point is, has he been treated unfairly? To me, there's no question the media has not given him a chance. But at the same time, He's brought he is his he continues to be his own worst enemy by taking a story which would be a one day story and sending out some stupid tweet at five o'clock in the morning and then turning that one day story into a two or a three or a four day story. Best example as we were talking about earlier in the show, Robert Mueller appointed to be the special counsel. Everybody is applauding that. He's well respected. And then, you know, you send out a tweet at five thirty five this morning talking about how 
You know, it's it's part of a witch hunt. Well, okay, now that becomes the story. Trump says it's a witch hunt. That's going to be dominating the story for the next 24 hours. On a sun- Sunday morning when everything is calmed down, you know, you send out a tweet accusing, you know, President Obama of wiretapping you during the campaign, and that starts off a firestorm that lasts for three weeks. Huh. Uh, let's see. Mark in Milwaukee sends us a text. The president's remarks just reflects his continued ignorance, irresponsibility, and enormous ego. He refuses to accept the consequences for his own actions. Instead of putting his head down and fighting, he should be hanging his head in shame, admitting his multiple mistakes. Well, I don't know that you need to do that, but at the same time, if you're going to complain about media coverage, what I always say is the guy who puts up the tent can't complain about the size of the circus. And I think that's perfectly appropriate to the president. You know, if you're going to complain about the coverage, and I understand why people get upset about it. Yes, the media has been out to get him. But maybe maybe if you just kind of let it go, maybe the coverage wouldn't be as resent- relentlessly negative. Okay, we're talking about the minimum markup law next, the new study that answers Answer some questions that a lot of people have had over the years. Stick around. It's 958 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1008, this is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. If you are a regular listener of this program, you know that over the years we've talked a lot about Wisconsin's, well, technically it is called the Unfair Sales Act. It is generally referred to as the minimum markup law, which says to gas stations and retailers that there is a certain price that they have to charge. And that it is illegal, and you're subject to penalties if you, for example, want to sell certain items below cost to act as loss leaders. The argument all along has been, we need this to protect small businesses. And if you didn't have this, you'd have the giants of the world, the the Walmarts that would come in and they would drive every small business out of business. Um, because they'd charge, they'd undercut on pricing, and then what would happen is once there was no competition moving forward anymore, then they would jack up their prices. The Unfair Sales Act goes back to the 1930s, and the the premise behind it, um, if it was ever valid, a lot of us, myself included, have questioned whether it still makes sense in 2017. There is a new study being released today by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty that takes a look at the Unfair Sales Act and the effect of minimum markup laws. And we are joined by Will Flanders, who is the research director for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Will, thanks for joining us again. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Okay, let, let's just review the bidding a little bit about, about the Unfair Sales Act and the history and the reasons behind it. Sure. So as you sort of mentioned, the law goes back to the Depression era. And in that era, we, as we know, it was an era where there was a lot of new governmental involvement in the business process. And one of the big specters and one of the sort of fears out there was that big corporations, would, big conglomerates would come in uh, set up shop next to a small business, whether it be a gas station or a grocery store or something of that nature, drive their prices down to a point that's not sustainable, put the mom and pop out of business, and then jack their prices up to a point that would be unfair to consumers. Um, whether or not the law made a difference at that time, we know that um, the barriers to entry in the marketplace have decreased over time. And so what we wanted to do with this study is see whether the law um, has any effect on the number of small businesses and gas stations today. Okay, before we get into that, let's just, for people who might not be familiar, how does the law operate with regard to to, to gas stations and to small businesses? What, what does it say they have to do with regard to their prices? Sure. With respect to 
uh, general products, so excluding gas and tobacco and alcohol, on those items, uh, retailers are mandated to charge at least above the cost of what it costs them to put the item on their shelf. So they're mandated to be at the point of profit. They're not allowed to take a loss on an item. Um, for gasoline... Okay, let me just stop you there for a minute. Before yes. we get... So so as a result, that's why sometimes, like say around Thanksgiving, you will, you will see... Same type of stores in Illinois sending out flyers that, that charge less for certain items than they can in Wisconsin because they'll run them like as a loss leader. We, we want to get, you know, we'll give people a deal on cranberries and we'll sell the cranberries like below cost to get them into the store because we'll make money because we're, we're selling them the Cool Whip and all that other stuff. You cannot do that legally in Wisconsin, right? Absolutely. And another good example is with prescription drugs. So, uh, Walmart and Meyer and other retailers in other states are able to offer $4 prescriptions. You know, in an era where we're concerned about the prices that people are paying for health care, for a lot of people in other states, that's a great deal. And it's the same logic. You'll, you'll go in there to get your medications filled. You might stick around and purchase other items as well. Um, but deals of that nature where uh, the store is selling them probably for somewhat of a loss, or at least not for a profit on prescription drugs, groceries, and things of that nature, um, are not allowed in Wisconsin. Okay, and then gasoline is, a, it's, is, it, is its own category under the law as well. That's correct. Uh, the, as, as bad as the markup is or as bad as the um, selling at cost mandate is for other items, for gasoline it's substantially more burdensome. Uh, the markup required on gasoline is not over 9%. And then on alcohol and tobacco, it's at 6%. So those categories of items are singled out for uh, even higher markups for consumers. Okay. And the, the whole rationale, we're talking with Will Flanders, who's the research director for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. And again, the rationale behind this is that if if you had a gasoline company, for example, a manufacturer, whatever, a provider that came in and, and sold gas, say, at cost, that would potentially drive out some of the other businesses, and then they would be able to corner the market. All right, so you took a study. Let's talk a little bit about your study and what you found. Sure. So we partnered with Ike Brannon, who's a fellow at the Cato Institute, who's done a a couple of studies previously uh, dealing with minimum markup in Wisconsin. Uh, We partnered with him, and we treated the existence and non-existence of minimum markup laws throughout the country as sort of a natural experiment. Um, of the 50 states, there's about half of them that have some sort of minimum markup law. And we said, well, if this law is having its intended effect, then what we should see is in states that have a minimum markup law, we should have more small businesses and we should have more gas stations, um, including a bunch of different control variables we tested whether or not that was the case uh, through an econometric model. And your conclusion? And we find that the minimum markup law um, has no effect on the number of retailers and no effect on the number of gas stations. Um, throughout the country, the, the effects are, are non-existent in a, in a statistical sense. There's the same, essentially the same number of retailers in Wisconsin as there are in states like Illinois that don't have a minimum markup law. The one, one effect of the minimum markup law, though, is to increase the profit margin as a general rule for gasoline retailers, right? Absolutely. It, it, the only group, I guess, that you could say that seems to be benefiting from the minimum markup law um, are, are gas station realtors and potentially um, other businesses that are not allowed to take a loss leader or something of that nature. Um, but businesses, you know, in border regions, um, businesses that are bordering Michigan or businesses that are bordering Illinois, even for those folks, it may end up being a loss because folks may go across the border um, to get their item for a cheaper price. Well, sure, and I think you see that again. Going back to my example around Thanksgiving, you know, if you live if you live on the Illinois. 
Illinois border and you have a choice between, for example, shopping in Waukegan or shopping in Kenosha and you get the flyer from the store and they're selling the same items for a lot less because they want to get you into the store, you're, you're going to go to the store in Waukegan. It just, it, seems, it just makes sense to me. Absolutely. And we've had retailers that have come in from states like Michigan, some larger retailers uh, that have um, had, you know, had issues with this law and didn't even perhaps weren't so familiar with its existence and ran into problems with people reporting them for selling things at a loss, when in reality, they're just trying to offer a better, a better price for consumers. So according to your study, this does not promote competition. What it promotes is higher profit margins for, uh, again, the gasoline retailers make more money, but that's money coming out of the consumer's pocket one way or the other. Absolutely. So one could make the argument, right, that if if this, in fact, did protect mom-and-pop retailers, there might be some folks out there would say, well, um, in order to protect these small businesses, we think that's in the interest of the state, then we're going to be willing to pay a little more for, for gas or for other items. But when we don't even see the effect that's expected from the law, when there is no difference in the number of retailers, um, then it's a cost to consumers, and it's no benefit to the retailers that the law is designed to affect. So uh, generally no benefits and a higher cost for consumers. Let's talk about the politics. I know your study was just looking at the empirical data, but but who is it that is pushing to continue this Depression-era law that I, I think a lot of us believe is clearly anti-consumer? I mean, where where does the support for this come from? Sure. So there, there are a number of lo- powerful lobbies in the legislature, and, and, and it's the same case throughout throughout the country as to why these laws continue to exist, um, that stand to benefit from keeping prices high. So we talked about uh, the example of gas stations. Uh, from the perspective of an existing gas station owner, in, in some instances, maybe a, a gas station owner enjoys being able to have a 9% profit on every gallon of gas they sell. Um, and that goes across the board. Uh, retailers that aren't in border regions and those that um, are in the interior of the state where people don't have a lot of options, um, they have an incentive to see these laws continue because, in effect, it, you know, it can prevent competition from entering the market because you're not really able to undercut the prices that are existing in those current uh, businesses. Now, it, I, I know I'm going to get a couple of emails after our conversation because when we're talking about gasoline, there are there are some exceptions in the Wisconsin law that will, under certain circumstances, allow gasoline retailers to sell below that nine point uh, whatever profit margin. Sure. So there, if, if it's not a actual gas station, so if it's an instance of perhaps a uh, tra- a trucking company that provides gas to their uh, to their trucks before they go out on the road, or if it's maybe a uh, I've seen instances where a uh, car rental place will have a uh, gas pump on their premises. In situations like that, uh, they, there's a lower level of markup. I believe it's at 6%. Right, right. But the bottom line is, if the idea is to promote competition, your empirical study says it's just not, <laughs> it, it, it's not doing that at all. Yes. It, the, the only rationale we tend to see for the law is that it's protecting the mom-and-pop retailers and promoting competition, um, and we see no evidence of that. So the net result is just higher prices without any of the benefits that people like to associate with the existence of these laws. Uh, Will Flanders, who's the research director from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Will, I, I found I, I, I found this, this study, I had an opportunity to read it in advance, and I found it you know very well researched and also very easy to understand. It kind of explains pretty clearly what the issues are. If somebody wants to get access to it, is it, avail- is it available publicly? 
Yes, you can uh, visit our website, will-law.org, and it's prominently displayed on the front page currently. Uh, The headline is, A Policy in Search of a Problem, a Study on the Impact of Minimum Markup Laws on Small Businesses and Gas Stations. I encourage people to look at it. Will Flanders, Research Director from Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, thanks for joining me this morning. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. All right. That's uh, All right. One segment on this. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I, I admit, I get on my soapbox on these issue, this particular issue. This is a law, this minimum markup law, that goes back to the 1930s. The idea was, we don't want the, the giant oil company moving in, running out all the local businesses, and then jacking up the prices in a monopoly. We don't have that now. There's really not a danger of that. I mean, you've got, all right, if you've got the giant national grocery store that comes in and lowers prices there's and, and drives out a mom-and-pop retailer, there, there's my position has been there's always going to be other retailers, whether it's national or whatever, they're going to come in and compete. This study says that they, they can't even find any evidence. When you compare states that have this law versus ones that don't, they can't find any evidence that this law has done anything to promote the existence of mom-and-pop retailers. It is simply a way of putting more money into some of the pockets of the businesses, small or otherwise, money that is coming out of the consumer's profits. And part of the problem is you've got some powerful lobbying groups that are out there that want to protect the profit margins for their businesses. I understand it. But the legislature, in my opinion, has decided to side with those businesses as opposed to siding with the consumers. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. It's 1020. It's 1022. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ron in Germantown. Ron, good morning. Hey, how you doing? Good. What do you think about all this? Well, you know, I I just want to give a different perspective. I'm not saying... uh you know, your, your guest is wrong by any means. I mean, he's got statistical data to back it up. But, but I can give you a real-life example. As a small business owner mm-hmm. who has a couple hundred of, you know, employees who reside and pay taxes in the state of Wisconsin, I need this law as I fight uh, Goliath in, 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 you know, in the form of Amazon, who is selling products below cost, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and what I would consider as predatory pricing when we uh, have discussions with our manufacturers who have a hard time controlling Goliath. Um, I need this law to protect me from what I consider a predatory uh, online retailer who is dumping product on the Internet to essentially capture market share. But I guess the issue would be, Ron, I, I, and I understand why, from your perspective, you need it. But the question would be, why should the government and its policies be interfering with the free market to give you a profit margin at the expense of the consumers? It, it's, it's not giving me a profit margin to, at the expense of the consumer. It's an it's a online retailer yeah. selling below cost, below minimum advertised prices of right. very large manufacturers who are having a hard time controlling this online retailer. And if we want to go back as consumers to the days of um, Vanderbilts and Rockefellers, and we want to go back to those days where we're left with one or two online retailers, 
then I will tell you, at some point, you will see major price inflation when yeah, all but, you have are one or two retailers. But see, but the point of the study is that that, that hasn't happened. That we, we've had the we've had this minimum mark. They look at states that don't have the minimum markup law, and it hasn't the, the large monopolies, the, the Vanderbilts or whatever. That that it hasn't made any difference. There's not more businesses in the states that have it than than don't. That that's just kind of been this fiction that's been thrown around since the 1930s. I I would respectfully disagree. I'm living it right now, and I'm telling you. I have a business that in the last 10 years has, has grown from 30 employees mm-hmm. to 200 employees. And right. listen, I, I sell a commodity, so I'm not going to create that type of employment growth if I'm not uh, competitive on price. But lately, having to fight predatory pricing mm-hmm. that manufacturers would acknowledge that, hey, we, we can't control this. This is right. out of hand. Um, you're going to see those 200 jobs in Wisconsin go away. And because, again, I mean, it, it's it's it, I'm telling you, if, if the if the laws put in place by, you know, people that, you know, were probably a lot smarter than we were back in the 20s and 30s mm-hmm. um, was to protect small, mid-sized businesses that incubate jobs, right. create those jobs in our state. Um, we got to think long and hard about what the statistics and the studies and what a paid uh, well. consulting firm might publish. Because this is a real-life example of, listen, I'm, I'm battling this today, and I'm telling you, I'm not trying to, you know, protect padded profit margins. I've got real-life examples of product that, whether it be gasoline or whether it be a, a pencil, uh, products that are being dumped on an online retailer and sold well below cost to push those small and mid-sized businesses out of business. Well, and I appreciate the perspective, Ron. I just, I, I guess I'm, I'm a free market guy, and you talk about, like, predatory pricing. It's difficult for me to see how if, let's take an example of a gas station. If a gas station decides we want to sell gasoline at cost, for example, because We've got, we want people to come in because we know that they're going to come in and chances are they're going to come into our convenience store that's attached to the gas station once they get the gas and that they're going to buy other stuff and that we're going to be able to, you know, make a profit. I don't have an issue with that. I, I, I just don't. And th- this idea and, if you do away with the minimum markup law, now again, the study finds this isn't the case. Is it true that some mom and pop businesses or some of the smaller businesses might go out of business? Yes. But I guess I just don't buy the idea in 2017 that that means that you're only going to have like one giant business that's going to be there. The only place you'll be able to get groceries is from, again, giant grocery store, because there's lots of giant grocery chains that are out there. There is always going to be this, this competition that's there. But I appreciate your perspective. I just think it's anti-consumer, and I think a lot of these concerns, if they were valid in the 1930s, they're not valid now. It's 1027. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is 1037. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I, I know there's people that do this. So I apologize if I'm going to offend you, but I I think chewing tobacco is about as disgusting a habit as you can have. I mean, it's it's just flat out 
gross. All right. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you, you take the smokeless tobacco, you stick the pin, the piece between your, your cheek and your gum. I did it one time when I was young and stupid. I was, it was, it was in college and I, I, I don't know why, but it was there. I tried it one time, one time convinced me that there is nothing good about this. It's just, it's just disgusting on so many levels. On top of that, it's really bad for you. I mean, taking that tobacco and just st- sticking it between your cheek and gum, what good stuff can come of it? Now, I understand people are grown-ups. People make these decisions to do it, but yuck. All right, now I bring this up because there is a lawsuit that is it, – it was filed about a year ago. It got a lot of attention, and now it is moving through the court system. Tony Gwynn. If you are a baseball fan, you will remember Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn, arguably one of the five to ten greatest hitters, in my opinion, in baseball history, um, played his entire career for the, the San Diego Padres. Tony Gwynn died several years ago as a result of, of cancer. Um, he started using smokeless tobacco in 1977 and used it um, essentially for more than 30 years. He was addicted to this. Um, They they say that Tony Gwynn at some times would go through uh, almost two tins of chewing chewing tobacco in a particular day. You know, can can you imagine this? Almost two tins of chewing tobacco a, a day. He started using smokeless tobacco in the late 1970s when he was playing baseball at San Diego State University. Um, did that for 31 years. He got cancer, um, essentially mouth cancer. He died at the age of 54. Now, let me back into this. Um, I the, the one time I used smokeless tobacco was probably about that, that, that time that he started doing this, sometime in the mid to late 1970s when I was in college. And it was a yuck factor. But on top of that, I understood that this was not healthy and not good for you. All right? Now, what happened is they didn't start putting warning labels on the smokeless tobacco. Let's see, because cigarettes you know, got a lot of attention. You know, cigarettes uh, got a lot of attention, and you started to have the no cigarette advertising and the warnings. That goes back to the 1960s. Um, the smokeless tobacco warnings didn't come into play until, like, the late, you know, 1970s, maybe a little bit later than that. So Tony Gwynn, he passes away, age of 54, of mouth cancer. His family files a lawsuit, $25 million lawsuit, and they filed it against a lot of different people. All the defendants have been dismissed out of the case except the U.S. Tobacco Company, which is the one that produces, like, the smokeless tobacco that he was chewing. The argument is that um, they are responsible um, they concealed the health risk of a product that they knew caused cancer and death and that he apparently had no idea that he was risking you know, his life by chewing tobacco and that by the time he became aware of the dangers of this, he was so addicted that he, he couldn't quit. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To give you the idea... Um, 
the the amount of chewing tobacco that he consumed on a daily basis was the equivalent of smoking four to five packs of cigarettes daily. He acknowledged that he was addicted. He acknowledged that he could not quit. But he says it's the fault of the tobacco companies. He didn't realize that there was a risk until it was too late. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It is unfortunate that this man passed away at the age of 54. There's no question about it. And I don't think there's any question that his death is attributable to a 31-year-old habit of chewing an enormous quantity of chewing tobacco on a daily basis. I, I think there's clearly causality. That being said, the idea that somebody who is an adult who starts chewing tobacco in the 1970s and consumes it in this quantity could not have been aware of the potential risks of doing this, I think that that is absolutely ridiculous. This is not the fault of the tobacco companies. They make a legal product. You can argue whether or not they should be allowed to manufacture the product. You can argue, in my mind, whether or not cigarettes are so dangerous and chewing tobacco is so dangerous that you shouldn't be allowed to market it. But we're not at that point. It is a legal product. The idea that Tony Gwynn consumed this product in these type of quantities, clearly it led to his premature death. That is unfortunate. But with all due respect to the family, there's nobody to blame in this case but the consumer. And I think this lawsuit is absurd. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss next. It's 1043. This is Jeff Wagner. Ten forty six, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ. They didn't start putting warning labels on tins of smokeless tobacco until about nineteen eighty seven. Tony Gwynn, famous baseball player, one of the arguably best hitters of all time, he started chewing tobacco when he was in college in the mid to late nineteen seventies. He was going through two tins of chewing tobacco a day, did it for thirty one years, died of mouth cancer. His family is now suing the tobacco company. It's down to they sued a lot of people. Everybody else has been dismissed, but it's now the maker of the tobacco company saying that they deceived Tony Gwynn, that he had no idea that there were the dangers of this and that they should pay tens of millions of dollars. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. With all due respect, I think this is ridiculous. Anybody that started chewing tobacco in 1977 had to know that it was not good for them, warning labels notwithstanding. Jason in Brookfield. Jason, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. How are you, sir? I am, I am well, and I feel bad that this guy lost his life. I feel bad for the family. But is it the fault of the tobacco company? Stupidity is alive and well here in the U.S. You know, we as a society have done our best to alleviate everybody of personal responsibility. So yeah. stupid decision always falls on the... Uh, the producer, on, on the, and this, the, yeah, the manufacturer exactly. in this case. It's, it's insane. You know, it's no less absurd to me than uh, the way that New York has is now outlawed large containers of soda. You know, people know what's going to do. They do a great job in the educational system of, of letting you know that tobacco is bad, too much sugar is bad, too much of this, too much of that. We're all very well apprised of these facts. But yet, when it comes down to it, we want to go ahead and sue people and, you know, take away our own personal responsibility for bad decisions that we made. 
Yeah, I mean, warning labels or not, I mean, warning labels on on cigarettes go back to like the 1960s. But even before that, I think people knew that this wasn't healthy. I can't believe that anybody in 1977 or whenever this guy says he started didn't realize that there was a health risk in putting a wad of tobacco, especially large quantities of tobacco, constantly in your mouth every day of your life. I was born in 1978. They, uh... As a, as a kid in the 80s, it was everywhere. Don't smoke, you know, all the different right. programs about keeping kids away from the dangers of the tobacco. The fact that, that they're trying to allege that he's had his head in a... In a, a Wherever, yeah. For the last however many decades, right. it's... it's Right. No, th- and see, that, that, that's, that's the point. Now, again, like I said going into this, you can have an argument about, you know, whether we should allow smokeless tobacco to be sold and, and whether the health consequences of that or cigarettes, you know, the bigger picture are, are so great that there, there should be a prohibition. But that's not what this is. Right now, it is a legal product. Adults make the decisions to use the legal product. I would argue, with all due respect to any of you who are out there chewing smokeless tobacco, that you are making an incredibly stupid and disgusting decision. But but you're adults. You get to make that particular decision. But if there are consequences from your decision, I don't think it's the manufacturer that is to blame for this. Let's talk to Robert in New Berlin. Robert, you're on 620 WTMJ. Uh, good morning. Uh, I, I agree with you. It, the, the, uh, I started smoking and trying smokeless tobacco in 1957, coming mm. out of high school. Right. I, and the, the, the smokeless tobacco tasted terrible. I only tried it a few times. It was really bad. And then I smoked until 1977. But we knew back in college, in late 50s, early 60s, this stuff was bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> and we used to laugh and say, hey, everybody, it's going to kill you. You know? Right. Well, but- fortunately, I quit now 40 years ago, and I'm doing just fine. Yeah, but I mean, but it wasn't, it, this wasn't a surprise. So over, oh, you know, over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years after you quit, when the Surgeon General's reports come out and say this is bad for you, that's not a surprise. You knew way back when that this isn't going to be something that's good for you. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. I just think the whole thing is kind of ludicrous, you it, know, so. Well, it is. I mean, thank, it is. Um, let's see, on our text line, Jeff, I don't think there's a warning label on a box of Twinkies, but if you ate two boxes of Twinkies a day for 30 years, my guess is you would have some health problems, maybe even death. Moderation and everything is is the key. I guess that's, that's the point of all this. We live in a free country where people make individual choices. Some of those individual choices are are bad for you. I don't want to live in a country, though, where necessarily you have the government coming in and saying you can't do that. But but if you make those choices, you have to live with the consequences of those decisions. Let's see. Um, Michael in Sheboygan. Michael, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yes, sir. Hi, Michael. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, I'm age 70, and uh, I've lost a lot of friends due to lifestyle choices, Yep. and tobacco is one of them. And I think the most important thing is how your body talks to you. I don't know anybody who ever had a cigarette who didn't get sick on the first cigarette. (laughs) Their body was telling them something. This is not a good idea. Right. And it's the same thing with people who chew tobacco. I know. The, I don't know anybody who didn't get sick the first time they tried it. Again, your body—it's simple as your body. But I agree, the lawsuit shouldn't be going on. But uh, it, it's going to happen because it's, this country uh, is a free country, and you can do that. Yeah. But um, yeah, right. It, it is, and, it, and, it, and the guys. I mean, thanks to call. I mean, this. I, I don't know how this is going to play out because it's it's being 
he was he was a legend in San Diego. This is Tony Gwynn is you know Robin Yount. I mean it, it's it's that and maybe even more so because I think Tony Gwynn you know passed away at an early state. I mean he's it's Bart Starr in Green Bay. It's Tom Brady in New England. I mean Tony Gwynn is is beloved, and so this lawsuit is in state court in San Diego. So he's going to be very very popular, and there's going to be this huge sympathy type of factor. And I'm sympathetic that that he lost his life. Believe me, there's nobody around that is more sympathetic to you know people you know surviving family members of people who've lost their lives due due to cancer. But you know a lot of times people who don't have unhealthy lifestyle situations, you know, they contract cancer and they pass away. And they haven't done anything to contribute to that. It is an awful and it's an unfair disease. But when you when you chew two tins of tobacco a day for 31 years, uh, you have brought on a lot of your own problems. And I understand there's people who smoke all their lives and, and they live long and productive lives, and, and that, that's okay. But when you when you chew two tins of tobacco a day, the equivalent of smoking four or five packs of cigarettes, and you do it every day for 31 years and you die, I'm sorry, it's not the fault of the tobacco manufacturer. 1056, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. She was on the poll, and she's proud of this. Hondo, who's producing the show today. Jennifer Lawrence, you know who Jennifer Lawrence is? Um, our, you know, uh, this is not to be confused with Jennifer Gardner, who's the actress who does, like, the, the credit card commercials. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, many people refer to her as America's sweetheart. I, I don't know that I'd necessarily say that, but she's um, a lot of – she's, like, 26 or 27 years old. She's been um, – She's really cute. <laughs> she's she's just she. There's no question. She's she's really cute. If you don't believe me, um, she played like the wife in American Hustle. That was a movie. She was in the Hunger Games. You know, she was the star of the Hunger Games. Um, did a lot of stuff. She was in X Men Apocalypse. Um, done a lot of different movies. Um, just I mean, her career goes back to 2008. So she was kind of a child actress. Now she's in her mid twenties. Now, why do I bring up Jennifer Lawrence? Well, here's 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 the deal. Apparently, she was. She was in Austria filming a, a movie, and she goes out. It's her best friend's birthday, and they're in some club, and she gets up on stage, and she starts dancing on the stripper pole. And, and of course, you, you've got some people who are – then there's this, like, grainy video of her. It says she's, like, dancing in a bra on this stripper pole. Well, um, you know, she's dancing on a bra on this stripper pole, and, and they put this out there. And there, there's a couple ways that you can handle this. You can either be ashamed and apologize. She's she's fighting back. She's firing back. She says, first of all, I wasn't dancing in a bra. This was a really expensive top that I was wearing. It was not a brassiere. It was a really expensive top. And she says, secondly, I was out there having a little bit of fun. You know, I was there with my best friend. I thought it would be kind of fun. And she says, actually, if you look at that, said considering that I don't have this core strength, and I've never done this before. So I think I actually did a pretty good job of doing this. So, um, you know, she, you know, she goes on and you know just says, "I'm not going to apologize, you know, for this. You know, I'm going out. I'm having a good time. I'm not going to be shamed into this." And I think, you know, she finds out the dark side of, of the internet. She'd seen that before because a couple of years ago, apparently, somebody put up some nude pictures of her or something like that. But I, I just, I just love this that she's not allowing herself to be, you know, pushed around. Um, the story in USA Today was Jennifer Lawrence thumbed her nose at the tabloid media and the internet on Wednesday after a blurry video surfaced um, of her 
pole dancing on a bar in Vienna, Austria. Um, you know, she says, look, um, here, here's the deal. I'm not going to be scandalized. Look, nobody wants to be reminded that they tried to dance on a stripper pole on the Internet, but it was one of my best friend's birthdays. Um, my, let, I let down my paranoia guard, guard for one second to have fun. I'm not going to apologize. I had a blast that night. And as far as I'm concerned, she's still America's sweetheart, even if she wants to dance on a stripper pole. Bring it on. It's 1108. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Colleen, I don't know if you were listening, but right before your news, I was just talking about this, the, the latest Internet thing, Jennifer Lawrence, star of the Hunger Games and all this stuff. Right. She's, she's filming a movie in Austria, and she's out. It's her best friend's birthday, and they're in some, like, you know, European whatever, and she gets up on one of the stripper poles and does this dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, somebody takes this grainy video of it, and it's like, there she is, like, dancing in the stripper pole in a bra. And she says, well, actually, it wasn't a bra. It was really expensive, you know, some fancy kind of top. <laughs> but she says, you know, she's, I'm not going to be ashamed of this. She said, yeah, I was having fun, and, you know, it's not, nothing wrong with what I did. And she essentially says, I'm not going to apologize for this type of stuff. So, I mean, there's this grainy video that's out there. Now, during the break, one of our regular listeners, Jeff, says, I'm very curious about this Jennifer Lawrence video, but I'm pretty sure I should not watch it on my work computer, Hmm. which may be good advice, except as I am walking out of the studio, guess who the first thing he has done is downloaded the (laughs) Jennifer Lawrence video. Who would that be? Yes, if Hondo. you were to guess Hondo, my producer. <laughs> yes, it's the, no sooner were the words out of my mouth. Forget about all the other stuff. He's downloading the Jennifer Lawrence video, or at least like trying to find it on the internet. And you found it to be disappointing. He found it to be disappointing because it's extremely poor quality. It's it's like just blurry type of stuff. Well, there are certain things we have to look up around here, and you know, to know what we're talking about, we have to see them. He he right, and and the fact that it <laughs> right, and the fact that. You know, I had already spoken about it. The fact, you know, it, no, no it's, I understand you're covering for it. Was just pure. It was just pure, pure and interest. He wanted yes. to see. Okay, if can you see anything? And actually, it's a very, very grainy video. But it, you know, it's the, it's the thing that's out there. But he did not miss a beat. So I can never accuse Hondo <laughs> of not paying attention or listening to the show when we're talking about the minimum markup law. He might zone out, but mention Jennifer Lawrence dancing on a pole in a nightclub. He's, He's there. there. <laughs> <laughs> Got to love it. Okay. Um, We've got Governor Walker coming up in about 25 minutes. Um, Governor's going to be talking about some of the things that have been done or are being done by uh, the legislature with regard to his budget proposals. It's going to be a real interesting conversation. That is at 1135 today. Typically on Thursdays, we, we during that segment, we do Pop Culture Corner. But um, given the fact that I had an opportunity to get the governor on the air to talk again about these very important tax policies, we'll, uh, we might do Pop Culture Corner tomorrow. Got a lot of stuff going on in tomorrow's show with our um, Radiothon to help raise money for our WTMJ Cares project. But we'll try to squeeze Pop Culture in tomorrow, Corner in tomorrow. But 1135 Governor Walker is going to be joining us. Um, while you are on the web searching for the Jennifer Gardner, not Jennifer Gardner, Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Gardner is the Gardner is the one who sells the the credit card stuff. Jennifer Lawrence video. Um, check out wtmj.com. One of our web exclusives are Brew Food News. Um, as I explained earlier, this was actually 
a lot of fun. As I explained earlier, this is part of our web initiative, and it's driven by our friend and colleague, Jay Sorgi. And what he does is he identifies, takes some of the on-air personalities and says, hey, go pick a place to have lunch. The key is some place that has lunch, that it has beer, and we'll talk about a, a current event. So the place I picked yesterday was, uh, and we went yesterday, was Lakefront Brewery. And of course, I'm a, a huge beer fan. And so we went down there and just had a, a wonderful lunch. It's a three-minute, three-and-a-half-minute video of Jay and I talking about the latest news of the day, which is Donald Trump and, you know, James Comey and things like that. But we're also sitting at Lakefront. You can see in the background, I'm sitting right in front of the the big mug that the big mug that um, Bernie Brewer used to slide into at County Stadium. So it's, it's, it's really very, very cool. Also, in addition to the video the three-minute video, there's about a 10- or 15-minute podcast where we talk about the issues, but we also spend about 10 minutes uh, chatting with Russ Klish, who's one of the leaders of the craft beer movement. He's the guy that founded Lakefront Brewery. So it, it, it was just a lot of fun, and I, I really appreciated the folks at Lakefront taking some time. And I, I actually, my best friend Evan went with me, and, and after we were done with like the photo shoot and all, I know you'll be surprised to hear this, Hondo. Um, we, we, we actually we had a second beer, and we walked down, and they've got this wonderful outdoor seating area along the Milwaukee River. It was just tr- absolutely tremendous. But if you want to check it out, uh, WTMJ.com, web exclusives, brew food news. It's the Trump Comey saga, but you just click on it, and you can um, see the stuff. So it was a lot of fun. Okay, Governor Walker coming up in about 20-some-odd minutes. I want to talk about a real interesting story involving – the relationship between work and politics. What rights should employers have when it comes to employees who get involved in politics on their own time? Now, okay, it's, for example, if you work here, I mean, it's, it's no secret. I mean, I'm a, I comment on politics. You listen to the show for 15 minutes, you know where I am, am politically. At the same time, uh, the, the company I work for, Scripps, has all sorts of rules that apply to most people who don't do what I do, do what I do for a living when it comes to political involvement. Here's, here is the story. Um, there's, there's a woman, um, and, you know, she works, she worked for a, a bank. She was a, a vice president at this bank called Lakeland Bank in New Jersey. She was very politically active. She was a big lefty. And one of the things that she had been doing is she had been part of of this group, which had been aggressively attacking, and I don't mean physically, but been going after a, a congressman from New Jersey whose name was Rodney Frelinghuysen. And she she was part of one of these lefty groups that was kind of trolling him, demanding that he have town halls. You know, I mean, the, the kind of the astroturf stuff that's been going on uh, across the, the country. And she's one of the organizers of one of these kind of left-wing groups that's been going after the congressman. She's also a vice president at this bank. So the owners of the bank have been very, very supportive of the congressman. And he sends out a, a fundraising letter uh, uh, saying, hey, look, um, I, I need I, I need your, you know, it's one of these typical fundraising letters. I need your help. I need to raise money. I've got these groups that are going after me. 
What he said and what happened next is very interesting, and I'll tell you about it in a minute. It's 1116, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1118, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Hey, help us complete the memorial to a local military legend as we continue our WTMJ Cares Initiative with a special radiothon. It's going to begin tomorrow at 8.30 in the morning. It's your chance to contribute to our goal of completing the new memorial for Medal of Honor recipient Lance Sijon at Mitchell Mitchell International Airport. Help us complete this mission starting at 8.30 tomorrow. Learn more about Lance Sijon, his story, and his lasting legacy by clicking on WTMJ Cares, the link at WTMJ.com. All right, there is a breaking news story, and um, this is one of those those difficult situations because – we talk about the fog of war. I mean, initial reports are just coming in. Um, there's been an incident in New York City. The reports are a car has plowed into a number of people in Times Square in New York. Um, multiple injuries. Colleen Bolin, we, we have a, an ABC rep- news report on this. That's right. We do. Several buildings also on lockdown there. Let's get the latest from ABC. This is a special report from ABC News. I'm Scott Goldberg in New York. There's been an incident in Times Square in the heart of this city. A car has struck several pedestrians. What exactly happened isn't clear, but in the middle of the day in a place that is densely packed with tourists and people who live and work in this city, a car has gone onto the sidewalk in Times Square. There are reports of several pedestrians struck. The nature of injuries not clear. The condition of the driver also not clear. But again, there has been an incident in Times Square in the heart of New York City. A car on a sidewalk, several pedestrians are hurt. More information as we have it. I'm Scott Goldberg. This has been a special report from ABC News. And NBC News reporting that at least one person has been killed. Of course, we'll have the latest information coming up. Right. And again, we, we will continue to follow this. Obviously, whenever you hear a story like this, uh, people wonder, is, is this like what happened in Nice, where you had the truck driver who, who did this? Is this what, like what happened um, in London you know, a month or two ago? And, and nobody knows exactly, but uh, we will continue to monitor it. But the story right now is uh, multiple people injured when a car drove down the sidewalk. Uh, NBC News is reporting one is dead. Who, who knows? Again, you got to be really careful with this. But that that is the breaking story, and we will continue to you know keep you updated on that, of course. So in any event, I was, I was telling you the story before we took the break. What happens is a woman is – she works as a vice president at this particular, this particular bank. Um, she's very active. She doesn't like the particular congressman. She's a liberal activist. Okay, so the congressman sends a, a fundraising letter to a member of the board at this particular bank. As part of the fundraising letter, the, the congressman is saying, hey, I'm getting all sorts of, of opposition, and I, I need your help. And then apparently he adds a handwritten note to the one that goes to the member, the fundraising letter that goes to the member of the bank that says, uh, P.S., one of the ringleaders works in your bank. And then he attaches a political article um, quoting this particular woman who's like a vice president of the bank. So the congressman sends this letter to the one member of the board of directors, says, hey, I've got all these people that are gunning for me. And matter of fact, one of them works for your ba- at your bank. Okay. The board member then shows the letter to um, this this particular woman. Um, and the, the boss, the woman's boss, says, hey, look, just so you know, the congressman 
is a friend of of the bank. He's done a lot of good stuff for us. And that if you're going to be politically active, you should in no way use our name or use your association with us um, in, in your political activities. And she says, well, I, I haven't done that. You don't need to worry. She eventually quits. And she says that one of the factors was that she felt that the bank was chilling her right to political expression when they whistle her in and say, look, you know, we, we know what you're doing. And if you're going to do this, don't use the bank's name. Okay, our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this is getting a lot of attention. Big story in USA Today, work and politics. What rights do employees have? And the question is, you know, what was the, and she's raising the issue that she thinks it was unfair of her boss to whistle her in and say, look, you know, it's we've been alerted that you're you're doing this politically. If you're going to do it, don't be associated with the bank at all. You can't have any association. She thinks that this is chilling to her. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, you feel free to disagree with me, but I think I think this lady's crazy. I think the bank has every right to say, look, if you as it's one thing if the bank said to her, "We don't want you being involved in political activity." on your own time. Okay, that that maybe maybe you've got a beef. I don't think that's going to be protected in, in most cases, but maybe you've got a beef. But to say, okay, look, this this congressman is somebody who we our institution supports him. If you're going to be out there trolling him, all right, just you you can't in any way be associated with the bank. Is that unreasonable? 414-799-1620. Scott in Hales Corner. Scott, good morning. You're first. Good morning, Jeff. Based upon how you're describing the situation, yeah. the bank is certainly within its rights to tell the woman involved that she should not identify herself in any way as an employee of the bank or let yeah. her association with the bank be known during in, with regard to her political views. Her views are her own. But I do worry that there are companies that do try to intimidate employees and sometimes job applicants if they get involved in political or social activities that some member of management dislikes. In fact, the right of employees and applicants to engage in political activities of their choice, as a general rule, should be protected by law in this country. It is in some states, such as California, right. North Dakota, But in most, Colorado. it's not. In most, it's not. not. Yeah, it in, in, right. In, 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 I mean, in, in most, it's not. But that's not what this situation is. This is this woman saying, I, I was shocked. I was shocked that the congressman, and she's actually filed an ethics complaint against him, I was shocked that the congressman would single me out in this letter and say that I was one of the people engaging in this political activity. Well, I don't think the congressman did anything wrong. I mean, I I just, I think that the congressman has a right, I guess, to say, oh, just so you know, you know, I I, I think from the perspective of the bank, and the implication is, hey, I've been great for your business. I'm this incredibly pro-business guy. I've done this stuff. You guys are supporting me. And just so you know, I've got one of your employees who's out there trying to actively, you know, cause me problems. And and she has the right to do it. But in this case, the bank didn't say, don't do it. The bank didn't say, knock it off. The bank just said, make sure that, you know, you are not associated with the bank in this political endeavor. Let's talk to Dennis in Kenosha. Dennis, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Happy birthday. Thank you. Belatedly, but thank Uh, you. I got through it. I'm having a good time. 
Well, <laughs> thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I agree. I agree with you. Um, you represent your employer inside and outside of work. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, your cell phone cut off, Dennis. After the birthday wishes. Yeah, I mean you 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 do, and I think you know on your own time, on your own time, you have the rights. You have the right to do various things, or you should have the right to do various things. But at the same time, if you're going to be identified with your employer and you're going to do stuff that might cause them, you know, some heartburn, well, you have to understand there's going to be consequences. Now, in this case, I don't think there were any consequences other than they cautioned her if you're going to engage in political activity, make sure you know that you cannot. Our name cannot be associated with this at all. I think that is reasonable. Okay, the latest report and um, uh, huh, the preliminary and again, I, I use this phrase. It, it, it's been around for decades and decades. The fog of war that sometimes, as you're getting news reports, sometimes some of the initial reports are a little bit inaccurate. But um, the reports that we're getting thus far, one person in custody. At least 13 people injured in this incident in Times Square. NBC News is reporting one dead. And the preliminary reports of this car plowing into people in Times Square, the preliminary reports are they do not believe it was an accident. Now, what that means, you know, we'll we'll figure it out. All right, we'll continue to keep you updated on that. And in less than seven minutes, we're supposed to be joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1128. 1136, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We are joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Governor, good morning. Hey, Jeff, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, I know one of the things that you are proudest of, or many, one of the many things you're proud of, is your ability, to, since you've been governor, to deliver property tax reform for taxpayers in Wisconsin. And I know that was part of the goal of the latest budget. A lot of interesting stuff going on in Madison. What? How, how do you see what's happening in the legislature right now? Well, you're exactly right. And and I'm particularly proud, as we promised, that property taxes, as well as income taxes, but property taxes are lower right now than they were in December of 2010. Not just lower increase, not just lower rate of increase, dollar for dollar lower in a medium valued home. And our goal in this budget is we want to continue that trend so that property taxes in December of 2018 are lower than they were in December of 2010, which I think would be remarkable, even if you'd asked the most Republican or Republicans back in 2010's election, eight years later, would property taxes be lower? They'd, they'd be shocked. This budget does it. Part of how we do that is through eliminating an entire tax. I mean, this is unheard of. We're proposing to eliminate the state portion of your property tax bill. So get rid of the state property tax bill. Most people, when they in December get out their bills, they look at they see the schools, they see the county, they see a municipality, technical school district. They say, what's the state stuff? The state portion would go away in our budget. It would be permanent property tax relief. We think that's a super idea, part of our plan of lowering property taxes yet again. What I'm concerned about right now, to your question, is that some state lawmakers, I think, think because they don't hear from people about property taxes, that that means that somehow the voters don't care about property taxes. I think we do. The reason they just don't hear about it so much is because we've actually been successful and lowered the overall property tax burden. But people want that to continue. They don't want something that would bring about a property tax increase. 
And that's why I hope people will, will call up their state lawmaker, call up your state senator, call up your state representative, and tell them, approve our provision that eliminates the state property tax uh, on the property tax bill and keep property tax relief in the budget. As long as we're talking about tax relief, Governor, I know, obviously, we all recognize that we need we, we need road improvements, we need road building. Um, the budget you presented essentially w- would do that by shifting some money, doing a little bit of bonding, but not a gas tax increase. My understanding is at least some people in the legislature are, are still considering a gas tax increase. Yeah, it's just the wrong direction. We didn't get elected. Certainly Republicans didn't get elected in 2010, me and, and those in the Assembly and the Senate uh, on the premise that we were going to raise taxes. We actually talked about lowering the burden on the hardworking taxpayers to make it easier for working families and senior citizens and family farmers and small business owners. And whether it's property taxes, income taxes, or the gas tax, or any tax on fuel for that matter. And now is not the time when we have such a large reform dividend that we are able to both lower property taxes and put more in the K-12 education than before. We're able to put more into the the money we provide for local governments to fix the roads and the bridges, so potholes, more money into the account we have for fixing state highways than ever before in each of those categories, we can do that without a gas tax increase. And I believe that even if those want to add more, now remember, if you don't add a penny to our budget, the total amount over eight years, two terms in office, the total amount spent on transportation will be $24 billion dollars. That is $3 billion more than Jim Dole spent in the eight years he was in office. So nobody can say we're not investing in our transportation system. I just don't believe that we need to raise taxes on people who buy their gas at the pump in order to do that. And, and again, that's one of those things, if you share that belief, help get the word out. Now, Governor, as long as we're talking about in- investing, one of the aspects of your budget that I think was just appealing to everybody, regardless of where their politics are, is the fact that you plan on, you want to put an enormous amount of money back into education, you know, K-12 and, and above that. Part of the way that money, where the money comes from, is to a plan you were floating to explore self-insurance for um, state employees. I actually had the Department of Secretary of the Department of Administration on the other day talking about how you believe that this would generate millions of dollars of, of savings, just low-hanging fruit, and yet it appears that there's people in the legislature that don't want to go down this route either. Jeff, you're exactly right. Six hundred, excuse me, sixty million, six zero, sixty million dollars worth of proven savings. When I say proven, this idea didn't come out of the blue. We've spent more than a year on it. Almost every state in the nation has some form of self-insurance, including Wisconsin, who does it. We do it for some parts of of our coverage for state employees. All about half of all the states, including our neighbor Minnesota, have complete self-insurance. And if you look across the workforce, over 90% of the employers, or not, over 90% of the people who are employed from employers who have 5,000 or more employees, so any of the large employers here and, and, and all over the place, over 90% of them are in self-insurance plans. So whether it's healthcare systems in our state, whether it's higher education institutions, uh, whether it's large businesses as well as a lot of small ones, self-insurance is a proven way to save money. The legislature, at least some have said in the Joint Finance Committee, oh, well, we won't do that. We'll instead ask the state, the entity that covers this, the Employee Trust Fund, 
to just get the savings at $60 million out, out of the system, the only way to do that uh, to get the full $60 million would be to see state employees see premium increases of about 50%. Uh, we need to make some reforms and some changes. We can do that either with self-insurance or not, but you're not going to get $60 million worth of savings out of something like that. Instead, why at a time when, when people want to keep their investments in schools, we want to keep our property and income tax relief, and some are calling for more money for transportation. To me, it just seems a step in the wrong direction to let that $60 million slip through their hands when it is proven savings. Um, on, on a different matter, Governor, um, reports yesterday that Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark is going to be resigning, taking a job in Washington. My understanding is that your office has not formally received a, a letter of resignation yet from the sheriff. That's right. Yeah, I, I had a month or two ago, Sheriff Clark had bumped into me and mentioned that uh, he was likely to take a position. At the time, he didn't know what that would be precisely. Um, but uh, obviously, he he made uh, the public comment about it yesterday. We have yet to receive an actual letter. I assume it will be forthcoming here. But once we get that official letter declaring that he's leaving office, uh, resigning from his position to take this, this supposed uh, federal position, then we have a process. We've done this before in other counties for sheriffs. This will be no different than what we do for sheriff, for district attorney, and that we do more frequently a similar process for judicial appointments across the state. We will open it up. It's about two weeks we typically take for an open period to accept applications, review those applications. And then we have a panel, both state and folks with local law enforcement experience, who review all these applicants and then give me a recommendation on who to interview as the finalist. We'll use that just as we have successfully in the past elsewhere. And, Governor, one one final thing while I have you on the line. I I know we've talked a lot uh, since President Trump took over, Republican administration. I, knew, I know you've been enthusiastic about the opportunity to maybe you know, get some reforms and some waivers for things so you could do welfare reform and things like that. Um, President Trump has been in the news a lot lately, appointment of now a, a special counsel and the firing of James Comey. Um, any comment about what's going on in the White House? Well, to me, there, you know, there's two separate worlds. The, the world we operate in is the world where we deal with, I, I think, arguably one of the best cabinets uh, in the history of this ca- of this country. We've had tremendous, in fact, I said the first six weeks of their administration, we as governors and state leaders had more contact with the, the new administration than, than just about any of us in the country, either party had had with the Obama administration in the previous six years. And so whether it's on welfare reform, health care reform, even the president stepping up in response to our concerns about the dairy industry and the impact that some of the decisions in Canada that we're making, we've had a positive reaction to this administration. Uh, in terms of things that are out of my domain, in terms of, as you mentioned, the FBI or Russia or other things, I'll leave that up to my colleagues in the federal level who are experts in those areas to comment on. But in terms of the help that we need from this administration, and for that matter, from many in this Congress, to help us do the reforms that are going to improve the lives of our citizens and are going to get more people into the workforce. So far, so good. And we're optimistic that and hopefully they will repeal, replace, and reform uh, Obamacare in a way that allows us to do what we've done successfully here in the state of Wisconsin, and that is not have an insurance gap without more government, to do more things that lower the tax burden, 
to help improve the economy, as we have done here in Wisconsin, and to build a better country, which will in turn build a better Wisconsin. Governor Scott Walker, thanks for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. Bottom line is, um, this is an important time, and people if, if people care about taxes, um, they, they need to let their legislatures, legislators know, because this is where the budget is being formed, right? Absolutely. Thanks, thanks for the time. Call your lawmaker, email your lawmaker, whatever it takes. Get the message out that that even though property taxes have gone down, people still care about it. And when you got a chance to eliminate an entire tax, get rid of the state property tax, man, now's the time to take it. It will provide permanent, lasting relief. Governor Scott Walker, thanks for joining me this morning. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks. How you know? <laughs> he makes an interesting point. You never see taxes disappear. And this is an opportunity in the Walker budget, you know, if the legislature signs on to this, that, that the whole property tax isn't going to disappear. But one portion of that property tax, when you get your bill, you know, I, I know most everybody looks at the bottom line, and I get that. But, you know, it's made up of all different components. You've got the state, the local school tax, and your local taxes. You know, what Governor Walker is talking about is a proposal that would eliminate that state portion of the property tax. How can you not love that? It's 1147, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Why is it always people from Wisconsin? This is a, it's kind of a breaking story. Uh, about a month ago, two teenagers, one's name, they're, they're both, I, they're both, I believe, from Milwaukee. They're definitely from Wisconsin. They're visiting friends. Um, they're on spring break. One guy's name is Peter Tea Time, and uh, the other one's name is Tommy Rector. They're in San Francisco, all right? The Golden Gate Bridge, um, 740, 750 some feet tall, you know, one of the most iconic things in, in this country. Um, they, they, they're out there visiting friends. What they do is it's 3 a.m. in the morning. They pull off to the side of the Golden Gate Bridge, um, and then they scale. They start climbing the thing. Um, they're on the bridge for about an hour. They film themselves, like hanging from the bridge and doing somersaults and things like that. There's strong winds. There's fog. There's slippery conditions. But they're up there, and, and they're doing the YouTube video. Um, all right. So you, first of all, you wonder what kind of morons would, would do this. And you know everybody in Wisconsin must be popping their buttons that these two idiots are and yes, that's what they are. These two idiots are, you know, from Wisconsin. But here's the larger point that's now creating all sorts of issues. In this day and age of terrorism and things of the like, how can two morons from Wisconsin climb the Golden Gate Bridge, be on there for an hour, and nobody know about it? Um, this, According to CBS News, bridge authorities didn't know that these two morons were up on the bridge until the video surfaces of them on the Internet. Now the California Highway Patrol is teaming up with Homeland Security to find out exactly how they managed to get up on this thing undetected. Yeah, that I think that's a kind of fair question here. Now, first of all, again, you wonder, you, you wonder who... What goes on in the mind of somebody who thinks, hey, this is a really good idea. I'm going to climb up this 750-foot-tall bridge, and I'm going to do somersaults from these things. Yeah, okay, that that's good thinking, number one. Who's thinking about this? But, again, the larger question is, how were you able to do that and nobody identify you? 